Bestow upon us, O God, all that thou dost ask of us, that in asking life of thee, we be ready to share thy life and the weight of it, which is thy love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Uh, that was the gospel text for today, so same sort of thing. Um, let me start, where should I start this? This side. This will go to Essie. February is Essie month. Um, that'll help buy some supplies that they need. I'm going to need some help handing that stuff out, Vic, in one second. I do have, so far I've handed out four different uh, packets. Some are packets, some are just sheets. I've given you um, the very first packet, which has all the biblical and confessional data. I gave you the ordination right last week. I gave you the bit from Luther, the fourth commandment, and also um, some citations on John chapter 20 last week. So if you need any of that, I'm not going to hand it out now because we're a little pressed for time, but if you need any of those, we're not going to talk about them specifically, but feel free to come up and grab one afterwards, okay? Uh, now, where did the vicar go? There he is. <laughs> okay, help me out with that. Thank you. Okay, um, just to kind of follow up from last week, are there any questions or comments from last week? You may remember we made it through all the biblical texts, so we got through the Adam text, the Old Testament texts, the Jesus text, the Apostle text, and then the pastor texts. And there is uh, sort of one continual stream that appears. The Adam text is not unrelated to the other texts. In fact, the Adam texts, uh, they find their connection to the other texts by the verbs that are used. So for instance, the very same verbs that are given to Adam in the garden, tend and keep, are then given to the Old Testament priests, the Levitical priesthood, and also it says the Lord put, in the Greek themenos, Adam into the garden to tend and keep it. That's the exact same verb that's then used of uh, St. Paul when he talks to Timothy. I thank the Lord who themenos, he put me into the ministry. So there is this sort of living stream from Adam then all the way until the New Testament pastorate slash priesthood. Okay? Yes? Yeah. Lay altar servers, okay. You wanted to know, I'm sorry, just tell me the end of that. Gotcha, yes, very good. So the question is, how do you reconcile Luther's uh, citation about, um, you know, only a ordained, consecrated, and sanctified, to use his words, uh, pastor can preside over the Eucharist with lay assistance? One of the struggles you run into is, and this is Pastor, Bru Pastor Bruzek's sermon this morning, which was actually brilliant. Um, the point is everything matters because everything teaches. So whatever you do in the divine service matters because in some sense it will teach. Now you run the risk of teaching a few different things. For instance, um, if you have lay people help distribute the Eucharist, you run the risk of teaching that um, you know, the pastoral office can somehow be extended to them. Same thing if you have women assist. In and of itself, those things are not sinful or wrong but they all teach, they all you know, sort of convey a message, you have to be careful about that. I think in this congregation, um, that's not something that people struggle with. Uh, my guess is people who come like on a Saturday night, which is when we primarily use lay assistance, um, don't say to themselves, uh, you know, John Crow or Fred Gady or Dave Woolrob or uh, Michael Hopkins are somehow operating within the office of the ministry. Um, now, there are some congregations that, where that may be true, and if that's true, then that teaches something, and we need to reevaluate. Um, but in and of itself, it's not wrong, because everything begins with the pastor, because it begins with Jesus, and then it's given out to people, and every once in a while, a pastor needs an extra set of hands. 
Okay? Yes? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there is a problem, um, you know, and you can, we don't have time necessarily to talk about all the problems related to it, but sometimes it does happen where lay people then, um, for whatever reason, either the church is very short-staffed or the pastor doesn't have the time or maybe the pastor doesn't have the interest, um, the lay people will often take the Eucharist then out to shut-ins. Um, that can be helpful if it's, if it's true that a pastor doesn't have the time. There are instances where, um, you know, pastors have, say, 20 or 30 shut-ins, and they actually all can't be seen in good time. Um, at the same time, some pastors, I mean, I know Missouri Synod pastors who just don't make hospital calls and don't make shut-in visits, and that would be an instance where it's not helpful, okay? All right, everybody have a hand out there? You okay, everybody okay? All right, if you need stuff from previous weeks, it's all up here, uh, but the handout that just came should be sort of our last bit now, and I hope to get through this this week. Um, the goal of all this has been, and, and I said this on the very first week, the goal of all this has been to find your spot. Uh, Pastor Bruzek talked for a few weeks about, you know, finding your spot as a member of the congregation. I think he may talk about that a little more. I'm not sure. Um, I'm trying to show you where our spot is as pastors because only when we both find our spots can the congregation grow and flourish. Um, if we're not finding our spots properly, or if I think my spot is your spot or you think your spot is my spot, uh, things are chaotic, and not only does that break efficiency, which is really one of the reasons we want to discuss this, but when things are chaotic, it returns us to what it was before Eden, and that's not where we want to go, okay? So order is a very good thing, and that's what we're after. So on your sheet there, um, I've given you, in this first part, you know, the first little section up there at the top was sort of a throwaway thing, but I do want to read through it. Here's the distinction. We always talk about churching the, churching the world. Missions or evangelism, very simply, means to church the world. You bring the church to the world. You bring faith to the unfaithful. You bring belief to those who don't believe. So churching the world is mission, and frankly, that's your task. Your job is to go out and to make disciples in the world. Um, how do you make disciples in the world, you personally? What's the best way you can make a disciple in the world? Give to missions is one, yeah. What else can you do? Yeah. Be an example. That was a gospel for today. I mean, you have to hear if you can hear that gospel or that gospel reading as gospel, which is, be salt, be light, be like me. I didn't abolish the law. Live like this. It's interesting. Jesus has a play on words where he says, if you don't do these things, you'll be the least in the kingdom. And then he says at the end, and if you don't do these things, you won't be in the kingdom. So actually, the way you live does matter. Okay. What else? Be an example. Give to missions. What's the easiest thing you can do? Yeah, okay, love your neighbor, practice hospitality. People don't always know what that means, but I do think you're right if we can understand that. Because loving them is very difficult. Yeah? Yeah, bring them to church. That's the easiest thing. Why? Because this is where the mission of the church begins, continues, is strengthened, and then it's carried out outside these walls. So churching the church is what happens in here. That's my job. That's Bruzek's job. That's Nelson's job. And I said there, pastors lead, lay people follow. That was all from last week in Ephesians 5. Churching the world, missions, Christians lead, and unbelievers follow. So your job is to set an example. And that's something that, you know, like Carol could talk about for weeks on end. There are so many opportunities to church the world. But the question arises, what if you're a leader in the church? And many of you here are either leaders presently or have been leaders in the past, or maybe you'd like to be leaders in the future. What if you're a leader in the church? What does that mean? 
What it means is you're first among equals. You're first among the laity. Okay? You're first among equals. You're first among the laity. This is the same way bishops talk about themselves in relation to pastors. They're first among equals. So leaders in the congregation advise, counsel, promote. And that's very important. They give advice. There are some things, frankly, pastors don't know a whole lot about. They counsel. They talk to other people. They care for them. They promote. They speak a good word. They always put the best construction on stuff. Leaders in the congregation, however, according to the biblical text and the confessions, do not dictate, direct, or govern in the sense that their decisions are full and are final. Okay? Well, yeah, that would be nice if they listened. Yeah, that would be good if they listened. That's always the first thing. Yeah, it would be, that would be good. That would be good. Um, so the whole point is finding your spot. And the way this goes bad is if leaders follow and followers lead. We're out of order. We're chaotic. So we need to get back, and maybe, maybe we're on that path, we need to get back to leaders leading and followers following. But, and here's the sticky point, our current congregational structure works like this, and you can go grab a constitution from the church office. St. John's Constitution, Article 5, Sections A, B, and D. This is the structure, this is the order. God, to the local congregation, St. John Wheaton, to the voters' assembly, to the lay leaders, primarily the governing board, then to the pastors and the staff, as it's called in the, in the Constitution, the ministry council, and then they carry out the day-to-day -day operations of the church. See the structure? God gives authority to the local congregation, who exercises that by virtue of the voters' assembly, who empowers governing board, lay leaders, to direct staff, pastors and staff, ministry council, to carry out the day-to-day -day operations of the church. In fact, it says the governing board is responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the church. Now, that's interesting because the governing board all has what? Day jobs. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they all have day jobs. So it becomes very difficult um, faithfully and continually to manage or govern the day-to-day -day operations of the church. And I will just tell you this, too. If you read the preamble to the Constitution, it says, in all things we will conform to the word of God. And it goes on to say, then, Article 2 no doctrine or practice in conflict with scripture or the confessions shall be taught or tolerated in this congregation. And of course, the question I'm leading you to is, is our current congregational structure in accord with scripture and with the Lutheran confessions? I've at least given you some instances where it's not. And yet, the Bible structure works like this. God gives authority to the church, not the local congregation, not Wheaton Bible, College Church, St. John Wheaton, Trinity Lyle, not anything like that. God empowers the one holy, small c, Catholic, apostolic church, who then hands on the ministry to pastors, who with the advice of lay leaders and the hard work of staff, this is, what you have to understand here, this is not pastors going at it alone. With the advice of lay leaders and the hard work of staff, the day-to-day -day operations of the church are carried out. That's the biblical structure. And that's a structure you see um, primarily in the book of Acts. In fact, I was stunned yesterday as I was reading through the book of Acts, just sort of devotionally. I was stunned to see in Acts chapter 2, you know, everybody says we want to be an Acts 2 church. Remember what the first thing it says in Acts 2? It says the believers devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching and the apostles' fellowship. 
So the community of apostles, the college of bishops, that is what the believers devoted themselves to. And that then played itself out in the daily breaking of bread, daily Eucharist, the reading of scripture, songs, hymns, all those things that come out then in St. Paul. But it begins with, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and koinonia. Okay? So Jesus delivers the ministry to the church, who hands it on to pastors, who then exercise day-to-day operation within the congregation with the advice of lay leaders, the hard work of staff. What happens? Stuff gets done. Yes? Yeah. Uh, pastors leave like there's no pastor left? Oh, yeah, that's, well, that's a, what you need then is you need, and this is what oftentimes happens, you get sort of an intentional interim pastor who's put in a congregation to serve that place. I think that's what happened here previously. Uh, the district president does that. Or the circuit council. Yeah, it's somebody above, outside the congregation. And what happens is, here's the thing you don't want in an interim. If we all drop dead tomorrow, okay, what you don't want is an interim who's going to come in and sort of exercise his will and change a congregation. At the same time, you don't want an interim who comes in and says, I don't know anything about this place, so I'm going to let everything go. <laughs> you actually need, here's your best interim, an old retired guy who's been through the mill a few times. Because he knows what to do, he's been around the block, he's seen everything, usually he's quiet and soft and knows, what he, and he can sort of direct traffic. What you don't want is, frankly, a young guy who's never done it before or someone who's blown up in every parish he's been to before. That's probably not a good interim. Yes? That's right. There is actually one pattern in the New Testament for a congregation. Yep. The Greek word for elder is presbyteros, which is the same word used for pastor. So the structure in the New Testament is, and you can read this in 1 Timothy, uh, bishop, episkopos, presbyteros, pastor, and deacon. That's the congregational structure. Uh, but, he goes on to, but he goes on to say, bishop, pastor, and he goes on to say in Acts, whatever it is, hey, we can't get all the work done our, on ourselves. Let's ordain a few men and send them out to be deacons. It's, not, oh, it's actually used, no, it's used actually more than once. Actually, it's not the same term. There is um, episcopos, which is bishop, and elder, which is pastor. Presbyteros, it's not the same word. It doesn't use episcopos the whole time, and it doesn't use presbyteros the whole time. That's certainly not the way the church has read it for 2,000 years. Yes, go ahead. Yep. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the trouble is... Yeah, right. When it, yes, good. that's a very good tr- critique, actually. AOR came in, and, and their first thing, I mean, wh- if you remember from their presentation, what was the one thing they said has to change? Constitution. Has to change. In fact, in the immortal words of Ted Kober, this is the worst constitution I have ever seen. Okay? But the one they provided us then to move forward was maybe better um, efficiency-wise and was maybe better accountability-wise but it wasn't necessarily uh, directed back toward the biblical text. So that was part of, that's part of the thing we have to work through. That's what we gotta figure out, okay? So how did we get here? This is an interesting turn of events. How many of you watch soap operas? Raise your hand. Val, you raised your hand once when I asked this question. Anybody else watch soap operas? If you want a soap opera, just read the story of the Missouri Synod, the history of the Missouri Synod. It's been one long soap opera. So um, how did we get to this form of church governance. How did this, our current structure, 
become the norm. Okay? So I've given you there on the next page. I think history is always fun, partly because you can do dogmatic theology, you can do doctrine very easily, but unless you know the history surrounding the events, it's very difficult then to say why people did certain things. In fact, if you read the Confessions, there are many great doctrinal statements, but they can be blown out of proportion if you don't read them in their proper context. You have to know the history. So what's the history? How did we get to where we're at? In 2001, the LCMS Convention adopted Resolution 717A, quote, to affirm Synod's official position on church administry, what we're talking about today, by 73.1% to 26.9%. The resolution affirmed CFW Walther's church and ministry, and some of you have read this, some of you have seen this, some of you have never heard of it before, I held it up last week, affirmed Walther's church and ministry as, quote, the definitive statement under Holy Scripture and the Lutheran confessions of the Synod's understanding on the subject of church and ministry, and it looks, in some sense, very similar to what we have in our current Constitution. Some of the ins and outs aren't the same, but basically, God empowers a local congregation. The local believers empower the pastors to carry out the day-to-day -day operations. And even though Walther asserts that, quote, the church is ordinarily bound to the ministry until the end of time, which means who depends upon whom? The church depends upon the ministry, not the ministry upon the church. His work proposes a structure where authority in the church belongs to the voters' assembly, promoting a congregational structure like we experience today at St. John. Every decision, um, now you can say it's, it's sort of been uh, uh, relegated um, or delegated to the governing board, but every decision at its core begins, continues, and ends in the voters' assembly. One man, one vote. And what's more, and you see this in some of, some of, Luther, or some of Walter's writings, What's more, the congregation, as a voters' assembly, is considered to be the one who reveals the will of God. If you want to know God's will, you vote in the congregation, and there you'll find out. Now, the rest of the story. How many of you watch 60 Minutes? I love 60 Minutes. I'm an old man on Sunday nights. It's great. 60 Minutes with a glass of wine, and you have the rest of the story. And so here it is, the rest of the story. This is what people don't know. The following substitute resolution was offered but did not receive the necessary majority vote to be considered. Quote, whereas many delegates, members of the congregations, and members of synod have not read C.F.W. Walther's church and ministry. I just ask you, how many of you have read this cover to cover? Okay, in a room of 115, I see two hands come up. We read it, the elders read it, yeah. So maybe there are 12. Okay, same, you have the same experience at the, at the Synod Convention. You remember, it's not just all pastors voting, it's pastors and lay leaders voting, and what they found was hardly anybody had read church and ministry. Critical questions have been raised concerning the available English translations of church and ministry. What they found was when it was translated from German to English, the translator missed some things. And whereas there appears to be much confusion concerning the questions of the church and the office of the ministry, therefore be it resolved, the two seminaries develop a document including a new translation of church and ministry that answers our present questions. Keep going down. Um, resolved that this document be studied by the Winkles, those are circuit meetings, circuit forums, and district conventions during the next triennium, and be it finally resolved that this document be brought before this body at the next Synodical Convention, 2004, for approval as our position on the teachings on church and ministry. 
What this resolution says is lots of people have not read it, including the voters, uh, which is, uh, in some sense, is dishonest. If you're voting on something that will forever affect the, the, the history of the church and you've never read it, that's very difficult. The other thing is, this is not a good available translation. There, we need a better translation. Why don't we talk to the seminaries? Why don't we study this for three years? And then we'll come back and vote on it. Obviously, this has been a pressing issue for 100 years. What's another three years? Well, as you can see down there at the bottom, um, it didn't receive uh, the votes needed to pass that resolution. So what was passed? Church and ministry as the official position on church and ministry congregational structure in the Missouri Synod. Now flip your page. How did we get to this point? Again, the history. This all comes, all this stuff I'm giving you now is not my own. This comes from Larry Rast, who's probably right now the leading historian in the Missouri Synod. In fact, I think he might be chairman of Concordia Historical Institute. But all of this comes from his findings. It was published in a journal called Logia um, a couple years back. So, um, do you know anything about the history of the Missouri Synod when they got off the boat, what happened? Yeah, you know a little bit. Let me, I'm going to give you all the RAST data, and then I'll give you some data that just was recently published. Lo and behold, um, the man who was the first bishop of the Missouri Synod, Martin Steffen, who was later defrocked, um, lo and behold, his great-great-grandson is still alive. Guess who just wrote a book? His great-great-grandson trying to um, retract some of the things that have been said about his great-great-grandfather, which weren't true. So here's what happened, um, according to Larry Rash. And this is all just kind of in back-and-forth conversation. And I'll give you then the text. What happened was they got off the boat. Martin Stephan was accused of you know, doing things with women he shouldn't do. He had some affairs. A few women came forward and said, yes, he had an affair. The pastors kicked him out. It was the middle of winter in St. Louis. They put him on the Mississippi River with no coat, simply overalls and an axe, and set him back across. Now, that's no way you treat a human being regardless of what you think about him. It'd be like today, sending a guy across the Mississippi on today's weather. Sent him back across, but guess what? The Missouri Synod, without their bishop, couldn't go on. So they go and they, they talk about what are we going to do. They realize one of their main problems is they don't have the money to continue. A very wealthy layperson, Carl Vesa, comes forward, and he says, I can give you the money you need to continue, but in return, you will change your congregational structure. Here's what it will look like. And what happens then today, we have the structure that's present in the Missouri Synod. Okay? So let me read to you. This is all now from the historian. The Saxon Lutherans, from whom the LCMS sprang, were led by Martin Stephan. Before they disembarked in their new homeland, the pastors who accompanied them recognized Stephan as bishop with authority over all things spiritual and temporal. Two things are interesting. Who recognized Stephan as bishop? The pastors. This is what happens in Acts. The pastors get together, they say we need someone to go, and they send him out, like when they elect Matthias. And all things spiritual and temporal. The implication was there's no distinction. Allegations made by several women led to his being forced out of the Lutheran church colony which, without their leader, was now threatened by internal disintegration. Carl Weza, the prominent layman, took a commanding role in attempting to move from the newly adopted and soon discredited Episcopal form of church government, that springs from the word episcopos in the text, to a democratic one, one man, one vote. 
Carl Weise had been state archivist in Saxony and by anyone's standards was well-educated and especially versed in and influenced by the revolutionary thought emerging from enlightenment in England and France, ignited by the French Revolution and spread in Germany by Napoleon's conflict. He was a modernist. What do you know about moderns? We can figure it out. Weise, fancying himself as a theologian and set down six propositions, among which was, these are the words from Weise himself, quote, the supremacy of the spiritual priesthood, the lay people, over the preaching office, and argued that, quote, the office of the ministry is only a public service, and only when, when it is committed to an individual by a congregation is it valid. The office of the ministry is only a public service, like a garbage man, and it's only valid when a congregation gives it to a pastor. Now, you didn't notice that in the ordination rite. Nowhere does it says in the nowhere does it say in the ordination rite you're now being a you're now going to be a pastor because the congregation has decided to make you one. What did it say in the ordination rite? He's been called by the Lord of the Church. He's been instructed and tested, and now he will be ordained and consecrated. Along with two other laymen, he wrote a book that, quote, argued that scripture and the confessions demand a congregational form of government. Among its tenets were that, quote, congregations as congregations are in honor to be preferred before the clergy. These are Vesa's words. Vesa deliberately inflamed the passions. Now, this is interesting. Vesa deliberately inflamed the passions of the people against their pastors. He did it on purpose. And according to Rast, offered a program typical of democratizing principles of American Protestantism. He wanted his church to be like the Baptist church in America. Quote, refusal to defer to seminary trained pastors, AKA, I read my Bible, I'm just as smart as you. Empowerment of the laity, one man, one vote. And offering enthusiastically a vision of what the people could accomplish themselves. If we just band together, we can make this happen. For Vesa, the laity possessed the keys of the kingdom immediately, and the pastor only indirectly. Again, John 20, Matthew 16, Matthew 18. It's in the ordination rite. To Peter, I give you the keys. To the apostles, I give you the keys. He never says to the entire church, I give you the keys. And I would also press you and say, when they selected a new apostle to fill the gap for Judas, who was it who selected him? They didn't take a congregational vote. The apostles got together and decided. Problematic for Rast, page 9, is that, quote, a good deal of Missouri Synod history, one might say all, has argued that the polity has been developed by our forebears directly from scripture and the confessions. And I would just pose, the, I, would, I, would, I, would put the, I would put the offer out there. Show me where that's the case. And if you can, and this is more important, show me where it's the predominant case. It might happen, like for instance, and I'm only saying this because it was just mentioned publicly in a lecture at the seminary by the president of the seminary. He said, whenever the congregation gets together to decide anything in the scriptures, does it usually go well for them or poorly for them? Poorly. And you know what the example was he cited? When Moses goes up on the mountain, what happens? The people all gather together, 
They decide what they're going to do as a congregation. Moses comes down off the mountain, and what are the people doing? Worshiping the idol. Or, the, the, maybe a, uh, an easier one to see, is Numbers 21. Moses, as the Lord's man, takes the people out into the wilderness. He's doing what Christ asked him to do. And what happens? It says in Numbers 21, the people grumbled against Moses. Why have you brought us out here in the wilderness? We're going to do this. Remember what happens? The snakes. Who saves them? The, the Lord through Moses. Moses put up a pillar. Put up a, you know, put up a pole with a snake on it, and they will be saved. Back to your outline. Characteristic. Characteristic of congregationalism is that each congregation determines what the truth will be for it. We should be very careful that Lutheran procedures do not become an acculturation to the pietistic enlightenment heritage common to American churches. We are not Baptists. We are Lutherans. Where the final decision is left in the hands of the congregation, and this is what the sovereignty of the congregation means, the pastor has little choice but to become a demagogue who must continually massage his congregation in order to survive. When I was before AOR, I can remember vividly, I preached that morning, I was performed for three hours in the school library. You know the one thing they said to me? One of the critiques was, you've not preached enough law. Now that's very interesting, because that's the fear that pastors have when congregations have full authority. If you preach the law, what happens? They won't like me, and if they don't like me, with one vote, you're... Just a pastor in the, I think it's in the Chicagoland area, I just got an email the other day. A pastor said, oh, my, my governing board got together, they don't think I'm the right guy, they've kicked me out. I'm the senior pastor and they've just kicked me out. I have, you know, roughly a month's severance, I don't know what I'm going to do, um, but thanks for everybody who's praying, to me, praying for me. Here's the thing, that's not the way the Lord sets up the church. That doesn't mean guys can't screw up, it just means that that's not the way the Lord sets up the church. Then the preaching of the law is compromised and addressing specific sins is rendered impossible. The people may not like it, and hence not like him. Examples include Moses, Jeremiah, and Jesus himself. And so you see this, um, and, and I, I'll just give you an example of how this is played out in real time. I think when Pastor Bruzek first came, the flowchart had no pastor listed on it. Regardless of what you think about church administration and structure and leadership, and regardless of what you think about this whole thing, there's no possible way a church can function without a pastor somewhere in the flowchart. <laughs> okay? That just can't, it cannot happen. So back to the question I started with. What does a successful pastor look like? And one more, how can St. John, how can all of us be successful when success is defined by faithfulness to Christ and his living word. And that's what I've tried to give you the past three weeks. And then today, the history of the Missouri Synod. Okay? Do you have anything you'd like to add? Go ahead. Now Pastor Gaining is going to get on a plane and leave the country. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. No, this will be Egypt soon. <laughs> so uh, we'll have to figure out what the next thing is yeah. going to be. Um, I see two possibilities going forward. I mean, I have two things uh, that I want to be doing the next couple weeks. My revenge is I'm only here for two weeks, then I'm going to leave. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, there's two possibilities here, at least. One is we could next week um, 
depending on the number of questions you have about this, it's always, you know, it's a, always a poor follow-up to, to try to answer questions from another man's text, but, you know, it is what it is. Two possibilities. One is we could uh, meet downstairs again like we did once before and sort of have you gather up your questions. That might be a helpful thing. Um, the other thing I think is we probably need to give um, some equal time to the very confusing notion of the priesthood of all believers. I'll give you the answer in advance, Luther's answer. You have to tell the difference between a priest and a pastor, and then you'll get it right. So we've done the pastoral side, but um, regularly then, we have, to, we have to look at the biblical text, I think, for priesthood, spiritual right. priesthood. Mm -hmm. And then um, at some point, we need to fit all, all that together. So it, it would what we do next week would depend on how, uh, how long you need to digest this. Um, you want to go downstairs, have a cup of coffee, and talk things over a little bit? Is that helpful to you, or you just want to keep popping? Raise your hand if you want to go downstairs next week and have a cup of coffee. Okay. Um, all right, let's just do that. Let's, so next week, let's plan to go downstairs. I think I won't... Um, I know what I'm going to prepare. I mean, I don't, I don't have it yet, but I know what I need to do from the scriptures and the confessions. What I think I'll try to do is uh, explain how we got here. Remember, we started long ago, far away, about finding your spot and working your spot. Now we've talked about a pastoral spot. We need to talk about lay folks' spot. And at some point, then, we need to move this over. Then the next thing that needs to happen, just so you know, um, we're going to have to probably spend a few weeks uh, rehearsing before we go into our new place. There's two choices. One is we can go in the first place and we kind of ruin the liturgy by giving you all sorts of advice and direction. And then the first, you know, ten services won't be that great. The other possibility is we could all get over there together as soon as things kind of get settled in place for a couple of Bible studies. And we could practice uh, like you did at the Christmas program when you were in <laughs> Sunday school. Walk into the altar. And it, you'll help us in this way because we think we know what we're going to do. But, of course, until you do it a time or two. So what I'd like to do, so three things I'd like to do. Um, talk about the priesthood of all believers. Talk about how these two things fit together. And then practice a little bit next door. I kind of foresee that happening, you know, around about uh, the beginning of April, late March, beginning of April, maybe taking a couple weeks. Uh, there was a helpful suggestion that the new place needs a user's manual. Uh, the question is whether you'll read it, you know, when you get your gift on Christmas, do you take it out and read it, or would you prefer to watch the video uh, of it? So th that's where I think we're going. Does that make sense? Yep. We haven't talked this over, but I think that's where, does that make sense to you? Okay. Uh, you know, just to keep, you know, the thing is, there's no, there's no rush, um, and, you know, thought creeps. So why don't we, why don't we have coffee downstairs next week? Please come back. Um, I'll try to just identify, there's been eight or ten topics like priests and pastors, power and authority, uh, finding your spot and working your spot. I, I kind of generate a list of the, the main topics, and we can pose questions about that if that's okay. And then uh, we'll move on. If I can stretch this out to two weeks downstairs, you'll come back right where you're leaving off. That's right. In an equal amount of trouble. So that'll be great. <laughs> All right. Yes, please. Can you add to those topics, though, what we do with Yeah, right. We don't really have that, so right, right. If we're not going to be able to change the entire degree of synod, what yeah. can we do 
Good. That's exactly where I want to be. I have no, I have no hope or hint. I'll not live long enough to change the entire Missouri Senate. <laughs> Frank, and I'm not running for anything, okay? But I will say to you what I said to somebody last night in an email, which is we need a constitution that plans for the best and curbs the worst and not the other way around. And I would suggest to you that the impulse of what Pastor Gaining has said to you today is, what did they do? They planned for the worst. So one of the most frightening things that was said to me during the AOR stuff in a meeting was when somebody said to me, you're my pastor, it's my job to distrust you. Okay, now I'd never heard that before, but I actually checked around. That is a legacy that apparently has deep roots all the way back to this. You're my pastor, my job. Man, that breaks the first commandment, the fourth commandment, the eighth commandment. That just breaks pretty much every, every you know, it's like that NL, the, the all-star shootout where they're breaking the plates. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, so yes, we need to talk about that because we got to figure something out and we got to figure something out together. And I still think we're not crisp on all our definitions. And, and of course, the other thing is I don't have any, um, uh, I don't have any timeline. I don't think you do either. I'd like to see progress, but I don't have a date, you know, like, hey, we got to do this. What we do need to do now, we're a lot smarter than we were before, so we need to sort of keep all this in mind. Just knowing what you know now should at least temper a voters meeting and the sort of things that are said. But I'll just give you an example. It's utterly impractical. For example, that in this congregation, we do human resources stuff in public in a voters meeting. That's nuts. As opposed, I mean, just you wouldn't do any human resources stuff publicly in your job because you'd all be sued and you'd get shut down. But in a congregation, what do we do? We debate people's, the merits of their, not just their behavior, their soul, and we allow that to happen. That's nuts, but it happens under our Constitution. It's crazy talk. So um, we got a lot of work to do, but I don't feel the press um, of a deadline, and I do think that we need to have everybody kind of feel like they have some basic definition so we can include what a bishop looks like in there. And I will add to Pastor Yang didn't say it, but you know, Titus 1.5, in terms of the New Testament church, it's very clear. You can um, go look at it. It says a congregation without a pastor is defective, unhealthy, broken. I mean, you can just go read it. I can also tell you that there were some district folks in the Bible study the, the week I taught that who never returned again after I taught it. I just tell you, you can tell people get up and walk out in the middle of something. I mean, it's a public event. So not everybody agrees, but scripture and the confessions, that's the way it works. So um, flee, flee. <laughs> and then uh, I'll clean up the mess. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, <laughs> thanks. Usually that river flows in a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a fair comment. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, we'll see you downstairs for coffee next week.